as we move to a different section of Isaiah today, a different um, style of writing, different genre of literature. So let me take you back to school days. How many of you just love tests? Okay, the two of you that are somewhat dishonest. No, I... <laughs> Test day was, was always the most unique day. And, and, you know, so test day was, the joke is, there's a lot of prayer on test days, and there was. And I used to teach at Biola, and I would always annoy my students because I'd pray for them on test day, and I'd pray that they'd remember everything they studied. <laughs> and I'd get dirty looks. And, um, but, hey, you know, t- tests were hard. Um, as a teacher, giving tests was hard. I don't know if you realize that. Um, Some of you have heard me talk about my my first semester of teaching at Biola, and I can remember writing the test out, and it was a subject I knew real well. I was doing it in my profession, and um, so I wrote an easy test, I thought. And the, the, the quickest student took about four hours to complete it, and I was just crushed because that is not what I wanted to do. And, and the second test I gave, one of the students left crying. And um, I, I'm, I knew her, too. She was a friend of mine because I was a young teacher. And I'm like, I have just failed. Giving tests is hard. And, and eventually I was able to refine it down to, okay, what would really test for, for the information this person should know at this stage of their career, at this stage of their, their um, education? But here's the thing. God gives us tests all the time. And he's really good at writing tests. He gives us tests that are exactly what we need at exactly the point we are. Tests that will reveal deficiencies. Tests that will expose need of God. And today as we come to this text, we come to a test, a final exam for Hezekiah. And it's a test of faith. It's a test that says, does my faith work? Does it work right here, right now? See, we, and we've talked about this. Trust is great to talk about, but when you have to put it into action, that's a whole nother experience. But that's the test. Now, we know that, that God and, and life, God through life, gives us a whole lot of pop quizzes on this, right? We never really expect or know when a test of trust is going to come. You could walk into work tomorrow and your boss in a solemn way, says, I need to speak with you in my office. And you know what's coming, and suddenly you're thrust into a test of trust. You may wake up and find out a family member is sick, and the doctor says it's serious, and you're thrust into an issue of trust. You may be driving along and someone rear into you, and you're thrust into a test of trust. And so today we want to talk about trust and we want to talk about the test of trust. And we're going to be moving into a narrative, a section of Isaiah where God is telling us the story of what happened to Hezekiah. He's been learning about trust and all these sermons from Isaiah that we've been talking about. Today is the question, do they stick? Does he get it? Is he going to remember what he's been taught or what he's studied? At a moment of crisis, we find out if the rubber is going to meet the road, and if it's going to work. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36. We'll be looking at 36 and 37 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback Bible somewhere around you under one of the seats on one of those trays. Um, We'd love for you to follow along. 
Um, If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that as our gift to you so you have a Bible. But we go to to Isaiah 36 and 37, and look in your Bibles for a minute, because I want to point out a couple things about the text before we get going. As you look in your Bible, do you notice that the print is different in 36 than it was in 35? In 35, and actually all of the chapters up until now, it's been lined up like poetry and stanzas and indented and things like that. And that's a sign that this was prophetic poetry is the genre we would call that. Now in 36, it changes and it looks like you picked up a book and are reading it. And actually 36 through 39 are that way. That's because this is a different style of writing. This is narrative. He's going to jump from the sermons now to what actually happened to an, an actual time in history and, and this is one of the fun ones because we know that this actually happened, not just from God's word, but from inscriptions in Assyria and Sennacherib, although he tells the story, he leaves out certain parts of the story, and we'll talk about that, where he gets defeated. Um, but up until then, we have all this story in history. And so that's important to understand that this is narrative. We read it a little differently. We read it as history, and we look for the lessons of how God is working in history. A couple of other notes, 36 and 37, that we're covering today. These cover the end of this whole situation with Assyria and trust. So we've been building this. It started back in chapter 7 with Ahaz. And, and King Ahaz met with the, the, um, the, or the kings of the north wanted to come to him and say, hey, help come into an alliance with us against Assyria. And Isaiah met him out by the conduit, the, the, um, the water supply, and said, don't do it. Don't, don't trust them, but also don't trust Assyria. We know Ahaz made an alliance with Assyria. He, he defied the words of God. And he made an alliance with the tiger, and the tiger bit his hand off. And Isaiah warned that that would happen. From, from chapter 7 on, 7 through 35, we've been seeing Isaiah's sermons to Hezekiah and to the nation. And... and all coming back to trust God. And he went nation by nation and said, you want to trust them? They die. You want to trust them? They fail. You want to trust them? And he goes on and on and on to say, there is no other basis for trust except God. And God in his wonderful love and grace was preparing Hezekiah for the test. He's the teacher in our lives of how to be godly, how to be Christ-like. And God doesn't waste the experiences. He doesn't waste what you're going through. He is teaching us for what's coming and preparing us. And he was doing that with Hezekiah. So we come to chapter 36. And 36 and 37 are the end of the Assyrian Chronicles, we'll call them. Now, 38 and 39... And we'll talk about this next week, and Pastor Andrew will talk a little bit more about this. That introduces the second half of Isaiah, and it introduces some things with Babylon. What's interesting is if, if you're thinking chronologically, 36 and 37 actually happen after 38 and 39. So these, these four chapters are two and two are reversed. And it's because it's arranged thematically. So 36 and 37 are the end of the Assyrian story that's been this whole, whole way of thinking. And then 38 and 39 are going to serve as introduction for the second half of the book when, when Judah is going to be in captivity in Babylon and writing ahead to, for those people, for their comfort. And so we have to understand that. And, you know, that's not uncommon, is it? Uh, Susie and I were at a wedding last night talking with some people we hadn't seen in years. And, and as we talked about different things going on in our lives, we, we didn't get out a calendar and do a timeline of our life. 
we, we sort of just shared, as the conversation wove to different directions, we shared events that had happened in our lives that applied to that. And so if you were listening, you would have thought my 12-year-old at some point became four. And, and it, you know, it's, it, it just goes all over because you're sharing events of life. That's what's happening here. This isn't saying that the Bible is, has an error in it. Um, the intention wasn't to be chronological. It's, it's um, written thematically. So that's just some things about the text. We, we start in chapter 36, and we start the story. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, verse 1, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And there's a whole lot of history that is in that one verse, and you can go to Second Kings and Second Chronicles and, and read some more about it. But I want to set it up a little bit. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, you're going to see, and on, you're going to see these next two chapters almost word for word at times. And that's because there's all this debate, did did kings come first, did Isaiah come first? Most likely Isaiah was written first, and then when the author of Kings was putting together a history, he took some of the documents that he knew were true, and he put those into the history. And so you're going to see it almost word for word. But we do have a whole background there. Um, in kings that we don't have in Isaiah. So we know that Assyria was coming down because Hezekiah had already stopped giving tribute. He had, he had already rebelled against Assyria. He, would, he said, we will no longer serve Assyria. You no longer get our money. And Assyria was going through a change of kingship there, a, a change of power. And then when the new king, Sennacherib, came to power, he said, no, 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 we're not letting any country defy us. I don't even think it was all about the money. With Assyria, I think it was all about the defiance. And anyone that defies us needs to be brutally put down so that way the next country will have motivation not to defy us. And so Sennacherib is coming down and and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, and he hits all the other cities or many of the other cities first. And, And he comes down, he's coming from the east, and he actually comes above Jerusalem and comes down to the west and takes out all these cities. And so, so really Jerusalem is nothing left. We know from inscri- inscriptions that Sennacherib took about 46 Judean cities. Historical documents say he deported over 200,000 Judeans. Because what they would do is they would kill the best, kill the soldiers, take whatever young women they wanted as wives, and then they would relocate the rest in various regions throughout their kingdom. They would completely absorb a culture till there was nothing left. They had already done this to the northern ten lost tribes. And now he's come through all the, the cities. He's at Lachish. And we talked about Lachish. Lachish is about 30 miles away from Jerusalem, southwest, and it was the last guardian city, the last way into Jerusalem. He had already taken out all of the other guardian cities of the valleys into Jerusalem. And he took out Lachish. And so at that point, we, we come to this story, and, and we know also from what we talked about last week and from Second Kings, while they were at Lachish, Hezekiah ha- had a, a lapse of judgment. And actually, he's had several lapses of judgment, but don't use that as an opportunity to just tear him down, because Hezekiah was listed as one of the great kings of Judah, a king after God's heart. But yet, Scripture tells us some of his failings, too. And so we know that he tried to make an alliance with Egypt. We know that he considered one with Babylon. We know that at this point in time where we come, he took money and tried to bribe Sennacherib from Assyria to go away. 
And it was like, oh, I, I know that I said we wouldn't serve you, but oops, my mistake. And he sent him gold and he sent him money to try to get him to leave. In fact, in Second Kings, we read that he went into the temple and he stripped the gold from the doors of the temple and took the silver out of the temple and paid a godless t- king with these holy items. That was a time where Hezekiah's faith dropped. A dark time. It was a hard time for the country. One author said, this is the year 701 B.C., the army of Sennacherib is swarming over Judah like a horde of Tolkienian orcs. I just had to get Tolkienian orcs in there. And only Jerusalem remains. But what a great picture. If you've seen the movies, these orcs just keep coming and coming and coming and they swarm over it. And, and picture them swarming all around Jerusalem and it's the last place alive. And that's where we come to the story. A good king that messed up. That failed to trust God when he should have. But he has a history of getting rid of idols and desecrating false worship. And so we read on. That's verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And point number one here that's going to cover this whole section, the 20 verses, is Assyria challenges Hezekiah's trust in God. Assyria challenges Hezekiah's trust in God. Because we read on in verse 2 and 2 and 3. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, son of Philkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And again, we can look at this and say, oh, it's just a bunch of, of silly history. We can move on. That's, that's nice. But there's, there's a couple things to understand here. When it says the king of Assyria in verse 2 sent the Rabshakeh, and I, I'm hoping that's how you pronounce that, that's not a name of a person. That's a title of a position. And the Rabshakeh, the position was the third in line of power of the army. And the way it went, you had the king, you had the supreme commander, although his name was not Snokes, and then underneath that, you had the Rabshakeh. And so what it says is the king sent him and sent the army to Jerusalem, and their goal is to intimidate Jerusalem to fall. Sennacherib wasn't stupid. And he's like, well, if, if we can actually get Jerusalem to open up their gates and just surrender, we lose less people, we lose less time, we go home sooner. And so that's his goal here. A couple of other things. Did you notice where this encounter took place? In verse, in verse 2 at the end there, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This was the exact same place 25 years or so earlier that Isaiah chased down Ahaz and said, trust God. Ahaz was Hezekiah's father. And we see this beautiful imagery of a failure and now God has taught and he's giving an opportunity to do the right thing. And it happens at the same place. And we know that Ahaz refused to trust God and a couple verses out of Isaiah 7 and 8 In Isaiah 7, 3, and 4, it says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, 
you and Shear Jasub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. But then we know that he chose to go with Assyria. And in the next chapter, Isaiah says, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. That was written 25 years earlier before Assyria was doing this. And and this prophecy is coming true to the word because Assyria has risen over its channels and is flooding the land and it has swept through all of Judah and now it's up to the neck with only Jerusalem being the head. And that's the same spot that Assyria now, their delegation is meeting Hezekiah's delegation. What a beautiful chance for restoration and for Hezekiah to do the right thing when dad didn't. We get on verse 4 through 20 and we see the Rabshakeh's speech and he's taunting God and he's taunting Judah. And he's going he's gonna to really in this speech give nine different things or nine different attacks to try to get them to surrender. Now, now, his goal here is just to shotgun as many attacks as he can. Some of them disagree with each other. He's not worried about internal consistency here. He's trying to do everything he can to demoralize the Israelites down in Judah and get them to open the doors and get them to no longer trust God. See, as we read this, I want you to think trust will always be tested. Trust will always be tested. At times it's tested by God so he can reveal a lack of trust and build our trust. But Satan will test our trust as well and try to convince us it's silly, it makes no sense, it's foolish. Why are you trusting in God? And so we need to look at this section as a challenge to God's authority, a challenge of trust. In fact, the word trust is used seven times in this speech. And if you remember when we talked about trust, trust is throwing oneself down at someone's feet. It's saying, I am deeply and entirely dependent on you. I throw myself down at your feet. And so when we trust God, we throw ourselves down in front of him and say, I am completely in your hand, in your grip, and I trust you. And so we read in verse 4, And the Rabshakeh said to him, Say to Hezekiah, and this is the delegation out at the conduit, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. He's boosting his own king up right there. On what do you rest this trust of yours? And we get to nine different things. I'm just going to hit these quickly. They're in your notes. Verse 5 is the first one. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And his first attack is that your words are empty and you have lousy strategy. You're just using words to strategy. It makes no sense. I've taken over your country. We're surrounding you. And you're just throwing out words like I trust God. Those words are nothing. That's what he's saying. You don't have strategy. You don't have the power to make it happen. says in, in the powerful war. Think about that. Think about tests we go through today. Are these just mere words? 
that have no power, that have no authority in our lives. We sometimes say we believe it, we, we obey his commands because it's written in the word. And that is laughed at and scoffed now. But this is power, guys. This is the word of God. Don't listen to the, the statements that say that's an antiquated book that has no relevance. It is God's word and it is powerful. What did God's word do in seven days at the beginning of time? Something no man has ever been able to recreate. So he says they're empty words. And he asks, in whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? And actually a, a number of things in this speech are very insightful. And I'm not siding with Assyria here. But there's a number of things that are are true to a point, And that's how Satan works so many times, is he'll take truth and then twist it and use it against us. But the question is actually brilliant. In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Because Assyria here caught that trust was the, the, the basis of rebellion. Trust in God means they would rebel. Trust in Assyria says they wouldn't. And he's pointing out really an interesting connection. Trust always has loyalty and obedience as part of what it is. And we've talked about that too. If we disobey God, it's because we don't trust God. We don't believe Him. If we do trust God, we will be loyal to Him. We will obey Him to the ends of the earth. And we prayed for the persecuted church. Why are those pastors willing to die for their faith? Because they trust God. True trust leads to, uh, uh, leads to loyalty and obedience. Assyria got that and asked it in a question. Now, they were trying to move them the other way. In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me because I'm so big and great and powerful? Then he goes on in verse 6. It says, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust him. And the second attack is your alliance with Egypt stinks and you will suffer. Maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Your alliance with Egypt stinks and you will suffer. And he says, you're, you're trusting in Egypt and they're like a broken reed. And if you, if you take some reeds and try to set something heavy on it, it just crushes them, right? Well, what if they're broken? They can't support anything. And he's saying they're broken. And he had already seen attacks on Egypt. He had already seen that Assyria was more powerful. He probably led some of those attacks. He says, they're a splintered reed. They're not going to support anything. And then he goes on and says, you know what? Let me tell you what's happening to you if you follow him. Such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. He will fail. You will fail. And Isaiah has already prophesied this. He's actually using truth again. Then we go on to seven. We get the third argument. And he's just, they're just coming rapid fire. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh, our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah have removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now this one's really interesting because the guy doesn't get it. He, he doesn't understand Judaism. And we know Hezekiah, part of why he was close to the heart of God is he went around and took down the high places, altars to false gods. He also took down false worship of Yahweh. See, they were only supposed to worship in Jerusalem. That's the only altar they could have. And that's why they, they recently found the altar at Lachish was desecrated. 
And that was from Hezekiah. And I love it again. A discovery a month ago confirms everything we're reading. But to the Assyrians, they think that Hezekiah is an idiot. You're saying you trust Yahweh and you're taking down his altars? And so, number three there, Yahweh's not going to like you tearing down his altars. And, and he's, he's saying things because he doesn't understand who God is and he doesn't understand what faith is. And he's saying false things about God. Now, what if you're someone listening to this conversation on the wall? And what if you don't understand about these altars? You're saying, oh, that's a good point. It looks like Hezekiah is against God, and now he's saying that, that he wants God's help. We can't trust God. And isn't this how Satan works? He'll whisper things about God that are only partially true, and he'll convince us of false things about God and try to get us to sway our mind. He did that with Eve in the garden. He does that with us. God can't be trusted. You know what? You, you've sinned a lot, and so don't even expect God's, God's faithfulness. Because God's a God of justice, isn't he? He's going to discipline you. You can't trust him. And we believe these lies. And we go a different way. Verses 8 and 9 gets to, get to the next argument. Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Number four there, your military is inferior. It's almost funny. He's mocking. You guys don't have a cavalry. You, you don't even have people that know how to ride horses. I could give you 2,000 horses and the weakest captain we have could single-handedly still defeat you. So he's pointing out the holes in their military. He goes on in verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And his argument is, your God that you're trusting, your God is on my side. Yahweh told me to attack you. It's God's will. Now again, he's actually right in the sovereignty of God. God did direct Assyria. But because God is still Judah's God, and he's using them as a hand of discipline. And so he's tying into a couple things to justification. Saying it's God's will. That's why we're doing it. That's why we're, we're, we're brutally killing you off. So you just have to go with it. It's God's will. It's like the college guy that wants to marry a girl. Goes up to her and says, you know, it's God's will for you to marry me. Yeah, huh. And we misuse God's will. I've heard it's God's will so many times to defend horrible actions. Well, I've prayed about it and come to this decision. Now, yes, we should pray about it and come to decisions. But almost always, when we haven't sought counsel and we haven't sought God's word and, and when we haven't truly spent work in prayer, we're using that to justify what we want to do. Assyria is justifying their actions. But he's also attacking the idea of God as their God. And he's saying, your God's abandoned you. He's on our side now. And sometimes in the test of trust, we feel like God has abandoned us. 
because we look so much on our circumstances and we forget that God is still at work. And that leads us into the next attack, verses 11 and 12. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. And what they're saying there is in Aramaic was the standard commerce language of the time, and not everyone knew it, but they did. And so they're like, talk in Aramaic, you're, you're trying to demoralize our people by speaking Hebrew. Well, what do you think Assyria does? Like, oh, you're worried about this? Cool, and he speaks louder in the language of the people. And he says in verse 12, But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? There's an encouraging word. And so what he's doing, he's focusing on the gloom and doom of the worst case scenario. Saying you're going to be under siege. The only thing you're going to have to eat is your dung, and to drink is your urine. What do we allow our minds to focus on in difficult situations? Assyria is trying to to say the narrative that they want them to hear. It's going to be awful. In verse 13 through 15, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of of the king of Assyria. He's saying, don't believe Hezekiah when he says that. It's not true. And so he's attacking their trust in their king. You can't trust your king either. He goes on and makes a couple of other arguments, 16 and 17. He says, come enjoy the good life. It will be easier than trusting in God. Come enjoy the good life. It will be easier than trusting in God. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria. Interesting enough, he never refers to Hezekiah as king in this whole passage and always refers to Snacherib as king. He, it's just subtle, but he, he's putting them down and he's attacking. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink water of his own cistern. You're going to have your own place. You're going to have your own trees. It's going to be awesome until I come and take, take you away to a land like your land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. It totally lies. They, they didn't give... Their, their deportees good lives they tortured them but he's saying this will be easier we'll give you a place just like this trust us i gotta say the way of compromise often looks easier at first doesn't it and this is another argument that just gets to the heart and it's, we so often make decisions based on comfort rather than trust And decisions based on comfort are going to get us into trouble. It's a false God and a false way of looking at life. Sin comes from making compromises. You know, we we, we can say when it comes to purity and your relationships and some of you that are are young and looking to be married, we can look at purity and say, well, you know, that's, that's hard. 
It'd be so much better just to abandon that one. So much more fun in life. And we compromise. We think that's easier than trusting God and it has long-lasting repercussions. Think of integrity at work. Ah, if I just give up a little bit of integrity, life will be better. God forgives anyway, doesn't He? And we compromise instead of trust. Don't elevate comfort over trust. Last argument, 18 through 20. Everyone else and their gods have fallen to us. You're next. Everyone else and their gods have already fallen to us. You're next. This is the evil appears to be winning or will win argument. And he says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Shepherdim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? And he goes on to say, it hasn't worked for anyone else. We're winning. We will win. We are stronger. And strength wins. And so he's taunting them. 20 verses. Testing their trust. How is your trust going to be tested? Maybe you're in a situation right now. What is testing your trust? See, trusting God also won't make sense to people. Won't make sense to this world. But will we trust? 21-22 gives us the, the official's response. They were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Sometimes foolishness and insolence is best left unanswered, isn't it? No answer would have sufficed. No answer would have helped. They just needed to step back and let God crush them. They came back. They came back to Hezekiah, tore their clothes, a sign of submission, repentance, of humility. And then we get to 37. And 37, we'll we'll hit these these points fairly quickly. Verses 1 through 7, I've titled, Faith at Last. Hezekiah humbles himself and seeks help from God through Isaiah. And, and, And there's some things in this. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And that was a sign of submission to God, of humility before God. It was a sign of helplessness that said, God, I can't do this on my own. I think for Hezekiah, it was also repentance. I blew it, God. I didn't trust you with the money. I didn't trust you with the alliances. This is why we're where we're at. And he repents before God and faith at last. And praise God, we can repent and always come to Him. And so we see an attitude of brokenness before God in these verses. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz. So he comes to the house of the Lord. He says, go get Isaiah. And what they said to his, uh, Isaiah was this. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. There's adversity. I deserved punishment. I'm rebuked for it. And we're disgraced because of what I've done. Children have come to the point of birth. There is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. 
oh, this is rich. The repentance and the brokenness. But catch, catch what Isaiah is appealing to in verse 4. He's not saying, protect me, make me safe. He's appealing to the Lord's honor. They've mocked the living God and he gets it. It's not about him. It's about God's glory and who God is. And he's like, God, they are mocking you. They are saying you have no strength. They are saying you can't do this. I'm going to leave that in your hands to do something. And he's praying and praying for the remnant that are left because all that's left of Judah is in Jerusalem. And that brokenness is exactly where we need to be when we come to God to trust. As long as we are filled with self-sufficiency, as long as I am struggling with, I can do this, as my kids all said as they grew up, I can do this. We are not going to trust God fully. And oh, for us to learn that lesson before God has to break us. But he will if he has to, for his glory. Verses 5 through 7, we see God's answer. When the servants of kings Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, or to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the young men or little men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And catch the other comparison there. Fear versus trust. Do not be afraid. Trust God. Fear and worry are always the opposite side of trust. Always. And God says, I will act. Jumping ahead through this chapter, the the next few verses, Sennacherib responds by setting his might above Yahweh. So the delegation goes back to Sennacherib. Sennacherib's gone north a little bit, fighting there. There's a rumor that Egypt might be coming up, so he's getting concerned. And so he doubles down on his threat against Yahweh, sends a letter back to Hezekiah, and you can read that, but says, your God is nothing. He is worthless. Why are you trusting in him? In fact, your God is deceiving you, saying he can protect you. And so Sennacherib has now turned this into a spiritual battle. It always was, but now he's overtly saying, your God stinks. My God is better. Oh, let's see how Yahweh handles that. In verse 14, the next section, we have Hezekiah fully trusts God to win the conflict. And this is so beautiful, and I want to read this prayer, and then we'll get to the conclusion. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. This is the letter from Sennacherib that doubles down, says your God is awful. And he reads it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. His first response this time, let's go to God. And it says he took the letter and he went before the throne and he went in the house of the Lord and he puts it in front of God. And he lays it there. And I picture him because trust is is putting yourself at the feet of God. And I picture him putting this there and in prayer saying, God, this, this is what I need you to take care of. This is what I want you to take care of. This is an offense to you. He has mocked you. So here it is. I leave it with you. That's trust. That's why prayer always is the first evidence of trust. Because it's leaving it with God. 
you remember what I said, one of the, the definitions of trust was the Hebrew definition was throwing yourself down at someone's feet. That's what Hezekiah did. He threw his problems down at God's feet. And now the notes are all mixed up. <laughs> and listen to his prayer. He starts with praise of God and his character and his sovereignty where we have to start with trust. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Isn't that beautiful? God is God alone. There is no other God like him. He's the creator of all things. And then he goes on to his requests and he appeals to God's reputation again, not his own wants. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. His heart is broken because he loves God and God has been mocked. Just like I know many of you men, if someone mocked your wives, oh man, bad things. That's how Hezekiah is now with Yahweh. Someone mocked his God? Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and the lands. They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. That's prayer. That's getting it right and saying this is about him. This is about his glory. This isn't about whether my cat makes it through the vet. This is about how will God be glorified in this situation. That's a whole different way of thinking, a whole different way of praying. But we've got to, and trust, throw ourselves at God's feet and say, this is about your plan, even if I don't understand it. Your glory, even if it hurts. Because that is what will be for the greatest good. And it will be amazing. And finally, in the last few verses, God works amazing things. Sennacherib falls at God's hand. I'll just highlight a couple of these verses. Then Isaiah in verse 21, the son of Amaz sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Israel. This is the word. I would underline or highlight because you have prayed to me. The question often is, does prayer actually work? God says it does. Even if we don't understand how that works in the sovereignty of God, God here says, because you prayed for me. The implication is this, if he didn't, the results would have been drastically different. But he humbled himself, he prayed, and God works. He goes and he addresses Sennacherib in verse 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. And he goes on to say what's going to happen to them. They think they're so great, but they're not. God is sovereign over history, over strength, over people, over rulers. In verse verse 29, Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. You go against God 
God will crush you. It's that simple. And he's using imagery there. If you can put up that picture, the Assyrians, this is how they would take their captives back to Assyria. They would pierce either their nose or their lips and put ropes through it and lead people on a train back to Assyria. That's why it's so funny when he says, come to a better life. This. You didn't run hard when you'd lose your nose and lips. And God uses this imagery to say, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. I don't want to get gross, but this is how serious God is on his plan and his way and his sovereignty. And because Hezekiah prayed and trusted God, this is what God's going to do. We see that a remnant will remain, but I want to jump down to 33. And this is the end of the story, the end of the trust test. We know that Hezekiah trusted. He learned his lesson. He went to God, put himself at his feet. And 33, listen to the results. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Yahweh is God. He is still on the throne. He will defend his people, and he will defend his sovereign plan. And that sets us up for the big battle between Assyria and Jerusalem. And so we're going to see just huge descriptions of this battle, right? Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's the battle. That's how hard it was for God. And they wake up the next morning, it says, and when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Picture that. You're in an army of a couple hundred thousand. You wake up and 185,000 people are dead overnight. Yahweh protects his people. Yahweh can be trusted. Then Sennacherib, this is so understated. It's so funny. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Maybe that town rings a bell. 185,000 die. Sennacherib wakes up and wakes up and says, I'm fighting a fight I can't win. And he hightails it back home. Interestingly enough, Assyria never came to Jerusalem again. I mean, would you? Who could be trusted? God or Sennacherib? And as promised, as God prophesied, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, this is about 20 years later, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This led to his undoing. That's the end of the Trust Chronicles. And it ends with a powerful statement that says, Yahweh alone can be trusted. 
See, Assyria was actually right when they were confronting Hezekiah and all these other things and said, you trust this, that's not going to work. You trust this, that's not going to work. They were right on all those things. The only thing they were wrong on is you trust Yahweh and Yahweh won. And a couple things to take away, and I know we're ending late. God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And that same God that could handle a horde of Orkian army people can handle what you're facing tomorrow. If we will bow at his feet and leave our problems at the throne and actually trust him instead of trying to solve it ourselves and worrying about it ourselves. Oh, is that a message for this week in our country? Sovereign God is still sovereign. And whether you like the results of the election or whether you're troubled or fearful, either way, that's not who we put our trust in. Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton weren't our saviors. They didn't die on the cross and hang on that cross to pay for our sins. And so God's plan goes forth. He still loves you. He's still taking care of you. And God forbid if Assyria comes against you and you're trusting in God. Last lesson that I I think of this, when I look at, at Hezekiah, I am comforted by the fact that he messed up and God could still use him. Amen? He's a man of God. And just because he had a time where he failed to trust God, God lovingly and graciously gave him a test and brought him back to that and God used him in powerful ways. Now, yes, he messed up and we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But what comfort for us unless you're the one sitting here that's never messed up, which you have. God is reaching out to us and says, I can use you if you will come to me. I will forgive you if you will believe in me and trust in me. Come and trust. Let me pray. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for tests tests of trust that draw us and drive us to our knees in front of you. Lord, may we know you are God and believe it and trust you. Strip away everything else we trust in. Thank you for your powerful hand executing your plan in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.